Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Anyone who is a regular listener will know that we often refer to Harry Potter and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and they are not the only texts we mention that have problematic creators. Many of the actors from the Harry Potter films have come out to reassure fans that it is okay to love the property while not supporting the message of hate its creator preaches. But is it really so easy? How connected are creators to their creations? And has it changed in recent years with the rise of the cult of celebrity? Let's start things off with a discussion of Joss Whedon. So for a long time, he was held up as as a great feminist icon, making all these shows that were female-led and really strong women. Do you think his feminist messages have been tarnished by his recent fall from grace? Or are there still valuable feminist messages to be gleaned from Buffy, Firefly, Dollhouse and more? Well, to be honest, I've actually only, I'm only really familiar with Buffy. I've not really watched Firefly or Dollhouse. I don't even know what that is. So um, I can only really speak from the Buffy standpoint. And I am still a Buffy fan. I think it would be really hard not to be um i was pretty shocked when the allegations came out and also it's extremely depressing when you read this stuff because anything that you've held close to your heart and that you've bigged up you know on shows like this you know to other people as a standard uh, to aspire to and then you realize that this is what the creator really thinks that is a bit of a you know a knife in the heart but i i feel like I think we'll, we'll be going to be talking about this later, about separating the creative from, you know, the art from the artist. I think there's still a lot of stuff in Buffy, maybe not so much in the later episodes, in the later seasons even, but, you know, but in the early stuff, I feel that for its time, it was still very groundbreaking. Yeah, I agree. I think the problems that I had with the plot before I heard all this about Joss Whedon, I think I really had problems with it and those problems were emphasised when I had all of the fallout and his fall from grace. So they were already there and I was just like, oh, maybe I'm, you know, reading too much into it or, you know, maybe it wasn't Joss, maybe it was someone else who had some influence on the script. So I kind of feel like it's just strengthened my opinion and gone, oh, okay, yeah, so they were problematic. I think what is quite troubling is not necessarily the messages within the work itself, I think I was quite distressed by how hearing how Joss was so horrible to everybody on set, or particularly to Charisma Carpenter, who was one of the, the main people who spoke out. And in a weird way, I think that would affect me more. And kind of looking at this person giving this really epic performance, because, you know, Cordelia is amazing. Uh, I mean, she's really horrible, obviously, that's the point, but she's also quite cool. And I, I think I'll sort of feel a little bit sad re-watching it, knowing that she was clearly having such a tough time there. And it'll break up the camaraderie of of watching it and seeing them all interact, knowing that some of them were, you know, getting special star treatment and some of them were being treated really shoddily. So I think that is going to affect me more than 
the feminist, the lack of feminist messages, because I already kind of spotted a few. Firefly, I sort of have a love-hate relationship with the women in that. I really don't like Inara and how she's set up. And that always really troubled me. I especially didn't like Mal's attitude to her. I'm reading up on how Firefly was going to develop later on. Uh, if you, if Joss Whedon had been allowed to continue, there were some really troubling and upsetting storylines involving the two of them and her background. And it was ultimately Mal coming to accept Inara, but it was done in such a horrible, traumatic way that I'm not really sure I would have enjoyed it or, or felt felt that it was quite the firefly that I knew and loved. But having said that, I mean, Zoe and Kaylee are just amazing. And River Song, I mean, you've got so many wonderful characters that are kind of, I do struggle with Anara, but I can skim over most of it when I'm rewatching it. Dullhouse, I never really enjoyed that, was just exploitation of women and it just didn't really grip me. I didn't think there was enough there to make the exploitation of women feel like it was watchable and that it was enjoyable. And yeah, I watched it once. It was fascinating for all the the additional characters who put in some fabulous performances. But I just, yeah, that's one that I really couldn't watch again. And even even more so now that I know about all this fallout. Yeah. So talking about what Joss had planned for Inara, I mean, do you know about the the script that like exists in the the dark places on the internet that you know he actually wrote about Anara basically being gang raped by Reavers? That and was then, it. Yeah, yeah, activating biological technology to shut out the experience and then transmit a lethal STI to them. And oh my goodness, just like oh, I'm not necessarily sure if I read to all that detail, but yeah, it was basically she gets gang raped and Mal goes, "Gosh, this is really terrible. I should be." I should be really upset about other things as well. Oh, I've had a transformation. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's clearly the message here, Joss. <laughs> yeah, but see, that's the thing. There's a lot, and I know we talk about this in regards to a lot of different genres and, and novels, TV, films, but I think for me, the most kind of shocking thing, you know, when I actually took the time after being confronted with these, you know, accusations and so on about Joss Whedon's behavior, I actually, you know, went back and and looked at his body of work and realized things that I hadn't before, like trends of women gaining power through trauma, using trauma for character motivation, specifically women's trauma and pain for the motivation for men, as you say, like the motivation for Mal to do things. Or, I mean, the biggest one for me is Spike. Spike was on a path to redemption anyway. There was no need to make that happen because he then tried to rape Buffy. There was zero need for that. You know, and you you actually, um, if you hear James Masters talk about that, you know, he he was bawling his eyes out and he found it extremely traumatic to even like perform that. It's always, it's the women who are suffering in order to get the men to act. Several pregnancies that are the result of rape and the end in childbirth, you know, again with Cordelia and with Dala, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And I feel, I don't know, you know, especially because we've written this podcast and I like to think that I have my eyes open to such things. It was really hard to look back at some of this stuff that I really love and have loved for a very long time and to actually see things that I just didn't see before, that I I just kind of had blinkers on. I don't know, it's hard because I do still love it and 
I really do. I love Buffy and I love Firefly. Again, Dollhouse, I don't think has as much merit to it. But I, I, yeah, I, I almost feel guilty for continuing to love it, even though I can now see the the problematic aspects of it. It's hard, isn't it? Because I think gaining power through trauma is not necessarily a bad thing. I think actually a lot of characters in pretty much every every book or TV show that we consume gain power through trauma. I think the problem arises when it becomes gendered and it's always and exclusively women who must suffer in order to have a transformation. You know, as you pointed out, that if this happens for the men, it's that the, the women suffer f- to then change the men. And I think that that's where the problem is. But that's hard to isolate, really, because trauma is such a huge part of upping the tension in character stakes and plot stakes that you really have to sit down and pay attention in a way that you wouldn't perhaps want to. You know, when you watch something critically as as opposed to in an escapist way, I think it's at that point, like maybe you were saying when you went back and watched all those Buffy episodes and began to realise that there was a pattern there. I mean, I think this is really important. I think that's watching critically as an exercise is very important. And that's where we can realise that there is a pattern. And maybe that's the only way that it's possible to pick up on patterns like this, because they're so endemic to, well, to, to kind of popular culture. I totally agree with what Lucy was saying about trauma being so transformative. It's so central to so many stories. And like Megan's pointed out when she's been pulling the notes together for this, the problem with a lot of Joss's stuff is that women's pain seems to be sort of very gendered and that seems to be what's pushing them forward. And it's it just all feels wrapped up in a in a really anti-feminist kind of a feel to it. And I'm really, really looking forward to sitting and watching Buffy with my daughter when she's older. And I was just saying today, she was saying to me, Mummy, when can I come on the podcast? And I said, when you're old enough to watch Buffy and talk about it, you can come on the podcast. I do mean it. I will sit and watch Buffy with her. And I don't quite know how that's going to be because I'll be watching it in a very different aspect. I mean, I watched it growing up as a teenager and it had such an impact on me. Will it have the same impact on my daughter? Will she pick up on all the things that I didn't pick up on because my upbringing is very different to hers. And we've always been very good at trying to encourage her to see how treating people differently is wrong and how bullying people is wrong and whether she will pick stuff up. And I'm, I'm a little bit anxious that she'll go, you know what, mummy, Buffy isn't all that. I'll be like, oh, no. But I do feel that all the trauma in it is just, it's just not necessary. It's not, it's not deviating either. It's always the same kind of trauma. Like, Megan says, and this idea of dying in childbirth and stuff. I'm assuming when you're talking about Cordelia and uh, Darla, you're talking about Angel, which I haven't seen. Ah, yes. Yes. Yes, that's Angel. (laughs) But I I was balancing it out and I was thinking about Luke Skywalker and the trauma of losing a hand and finding out that Darth Vader is your father. Sorry for spoilers. And that Leia is your sister and all this stuff. And that's kind of very traumatic, but it, it doesn't quite feel as as icky as some of the stuff that I watched in in Joss Whedon stuff. So that was the, the best example I could think of, of of really dramatic trauma. It's all about being the son or the brother or, you know, losing, you know, your right hand, which as a man is really symbolic. And yet somehow it, it kind of feels different to the stuff that the women in 
Joss's things mm. go through. But <laughs> I love that you pointed out the hand thing. That is really interesting. Like losing a limb for a man is pretty bad. <laughs> he loses his lightsaber as well, you know. Oh, no. I, well, Simple. I mean, exactly. Yeah, I thought you were going to make make a joke because my when Charlotte said it loses his right hand which is really important to a man I was like is that because you think most of them wank with their right hand I mean that is what I think there is yes that. I mean you do hold your lightsaber air quotes in your uh, your right hand you're right yes I was, yeah. I was just going for something more highbrow but you you take your lightsaber true. out of your belt you press a button and stroke it and oh that pops and it's like yeah there's there's all there's all that stuff but that was my point that it was the most sort of male thing I could think of to balance out Joss's stuff and and I don't have a problem with the Luke Skywalker thing I mean it's quite quite funny when you really dig down to it but it just doesn't make me feel as as itchy and un- unhappy as it does when I dig down into to Joss's stuff okay I've just had like a very new experience of Luke's line in Return of the Jedi of you strike me down, I will become more powerful, somehow being a reference to an erection. So I'm now like in a very weird mental space. (laughs) So what you're saying is you're now going to go back and rewatch Star Wars in light of this conversation and see a whole new level to it. Because I don't always rewatch Star Wars, you know, pretty regularly. Uh, I mean, hasn't Meg done this already? Watched Star Wars with a sexual context? <laughs> yeah, but it's it's what we were saying just now about watching something for escapism and watching something critically. And now <laughs> she'll be looking for all like the phallic symbols in it. You know, with small Sorry. wrinkled Yoda yeah. and all this kind of thing. It's just like, you know, there's loads of stuff oh. if you look down really <laughs> Yeah, deep. he does look like a scrotum, it has to be said. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Side girl, we diverge. <laughs> But I mean, you you did say, you touched on something earlier, Charlotte, about, you know, maybe Joss wasn't the one necessarily behind all that. Maybe it was some of the other writers and so on. And and yes, with TV shows and films, you know, the, they're hardly a product of, of one single person. Although several of the, the sort of staff writers on Buffy and Angel have said that pretty much Joss ran that as a very tight ship and he had absolute control over all of that. But generally speaking, you know, there are writers' rooms, there are groups of people who are bouncing ideas off each other and they're working together to create something. You know, while books are more of a solo product, but there are still a lot of people who who work on them. You know, there are agents, editors, book production staff, all these people that actually you know, have jobs and are employed and go into the final thing. You know, if if we didn't have these people, even for um, self-published authors, you know, if we didn't have the ability to print them or to host eBooks or something, you know, there's there's always someone else involved. You know, does this? Do you think it makes a difference on how we should reflect on these works and and how far can we separate them from the you know the final product from the creator? But the, the basically. I think one of my favorite comments to come out of all of this was Sarah Michelle Geller saying, you know, that she was really happy for her name to always be associated with Buffy Summers, just not Joss Whedon. How do you two feel about, you know, the the separation of that? The the text, the book, the film, the TV show from the creator. I think the fact that Buffy and Firefly 
are the result of many minds, many acting talents, many photography geniuses, is it perhaps saving grace? And I know what you're saying about just having a very tight ship. But, I mean, just whatever whatever Joss is, he can't get the Sarah Michelle Geller look. You know, she's got that look that she has that was in all the pictures that's just Buffy Summers. And you can't get Rupert Giles' interpretation without Anthony Stewart Head. And, I mean, the Firefly, whatever the script, the actors were just amazing in bringing them all to life and they were so fantastic. And I think that is why I am going to be happy to let my daughter watch all these things and why I'm happy to rewatch them and sort of not take them with a pinch of salt, but, you know, take them knowing the caveats that I do. Whereas when it comes to stuff which is from an author, then I feel a bit more anxious about that. And I I don't necessarily like the feeling of reading J.K. Rowling anymore. But, you know, I know we're going to talk, talk about this later, I was thinking about Harry Potter, which I've just in the last couple of years reread with my daughter. And if any listeners know differently, then please do, you know, drop us a line and highlight it. But I couldn't find anything particularly transphobic within Harry Potter. I mean, there were no trans characters in it for a start, so I guess there is that. But there weren't any particularly negative messages associated with her political opinions. I mean, we've got all this issue about Ginny being really bitchy and, you know, all this stuff about Hermione just always being walked over and things, but that's kind of separate, you know, and I've talked to my daughter about those and we've discussed, you know, various things as they came up. I was like, what do you think of that? And how do you think about Ginny reacting like that? And so we've discussed those levels of it, but I never felt that I had to discuss anything anti-trans when we were reading Harry Potter. Whereas, in September 2020, J.K. Rowling under Robert Galbraith wrote about a serial killer who was a cis man who dressed as a woman to stalk women. And it's like, well, there is, you know, just all of your political opinions coming into your work. So in that area, I kind of go, where were the editors and everybody else going, you know what, J.K., after you put all these anti-trans tweets, are you sure you want to write this book? So I find it more objectionable when it is a book and it is a single person, even though there are masses of, you know, stops between an author writing the text and it actually coming onto your bookshelves. I find that more problematic than I would do a joint effort like a TV show. Yeah, it's difficult though. It it totally depends on the author. There are many authors like JK, like many others who, you know, who have reached the pinnacle of their careers um, from publishing's viewpoint where they won't be edited. They're just not edited. And I think that's a shame from a critical and creative standpoint. I mean, like I'm, my books would be nothing without my editors. I think they're vastly important, but I think they're also, you know, this is also a problem because of, of the reasons you've just highlighted that I think someone should have pointed that out and say, this is, you know, this is not a good time to be writing this sort of character into your books. Um, you know, and I, it's hard to say, isn't it? Because everything is subjective and people, you know, how do you legislate for subjectivity? It's very often these, these conversations are ethical, philosophical. Uh, it's very, it's really, really difficult to say whether something should be allowed or should not be allowed. And I'm very wary about um, censorship and, and silencing people's voices and all of that, as I think most people are. But books are interesting and I think it's it's 
difficult. I think it's a different situation than you have with something like Buffy, which I completely agree with you, Charlotte, about, you know, not wanting to to tar uh, Buffy with the Joss Whedon brush because it, it was so many marvellous talents went into creating that, that it would be a shame for that to tarnish the entire thing. And I, I think that's it's really important that we remember so many people were involved in it. And I think books are different in that, you know, very often an author does have, you know, particularly when they're at a certain point in their career, will have final say over it. And even and the people who, once you get to book production and things like that, I mean, <laughs> the people who work in book production have, will have no say over the text of a book at all. So, you know, they're, they're fairly powerless. Now, I think it is a slightly different situation, but I also think it's highly subjective and totally depends on, on the, you know, how much power. And I'm, sadly, when I say power, I kind of mean money, how much that person is worth. It's fascinating you should say that about people getting too big to edit. And I wonder if we have a bigger celebrity sort of status for authors these days, because I work for the Vintage News and I write articles from all sorts of history. And a little while ago, I got to write about Roald Dahl and I looked into him and I didn't realise what type of character he was. Yeah, <laughs> Megan's like, oh yeah, did you not realise? I'm like, no, I had no idea. But it was really fascinating reading about him. And Tim Burton, when he went to produce Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, got access to an earliest, earlier draft where just it was horrible and it was really unpleasant. And Veruca Salt was named after an STI. And there were stories about how Matilda actually just tormented her parents and, you know, tortured them and then got her powers and killed them and disappeared off. And there was a point where his editors basically went, you know what, maybe not, Roald. Maybe we'll try a different approach. Why don't we have her getting powers to escape horrible parents and we'll all have everybody living happily ever after. And, you know, you just kind of wonder whether it's changed a bit now. And like Lucy is saying, whether there are some authors who are so big that people just won't edit them. Whereas previously, Roald Dahl was one of the big names and yet there were still people willing to go, uh, no, Roald, let's, let's change it a bit, shall we? So I do wonder whether times have changed a little bit and whether because people like JK are out there, not only do you hear more about their opinions, you also they also sort of gain a higher status and therefore people are kind of going, well, okay, you know, they're out there promoting their stuff. We kind of want to back them, even if their ideas are objectionable. I don't know whether there's a link at all or whether it's just two very different examples. Yeah, you're right about them actually having pushed back on Roll because he was actually fired. That his his publishers dropped him because he was so horrible to their staff that they were just like, we don't care how much money you make for us, we will not work with you. Which I just can't imagine really happening nowadays. I mean, and and we can see that daily when you know people who have done horrendous things get like million dollar book deals suddenly because, well, yes, they're like the worst of the worst slimy person but they're gonna make us money so come on over we'll welcome you but i yeah i mean the cult of celebrity around authors and creators i mean i think this is definitely something that has changed and if someone like roald dahl lived now i think it would be a lot trickier i don't think that he potentially would have become so beloved. I don't know, or maybe he would have. But the thing is, you know, we have this, all these fans want to get really close and personal, you know, have this access to their heroes. And I'm totally with them. You know, I I have gone to so many Comic-Cons. I have queued up. I have 
almost wet myself with anticipation when I was about to meet Leonard Nimoy. And, oh my God. Oh, all the time that I met Tom Felton. Oh, what a lovely, lovely Slytherin that boy is. Um, uh, I mean, you, you accosted me to be on your podcast. I mean. I did, <laughs> yes. But this is the thing, like we do want to meet our heroes and in some ways that's lovely. I mean, there's always, you know, that, that thing about never meet your heroes because they'll always disappoint you. And I'm afraid Lucy, you did. Utterly <laughs> disappoint me. <laughs> wow. Burn, yeah. <laughs> it was all the poo jokes, wasn't it? <laughs> it's kind of like parents and children. You know, parents can give the, the kids as many tools as they can and can can try and help them grow and learn, but you can't actually control the kind of person that they're gonna be. You know, your authors, you know, you think you can know them through their work and Maybe you can, maybe you can't. They're never going to always be the perfect person. They're never going to behave in the way you want them to 100% of the time. And I wonder if it's better or worse to have that direct insight into their opinions, you know, outside of the texts. I started reading Ender's Game knowing that Orson Scott Card was problematic, but I still enjoyed the book. I didn't enjoy it enough to read anymore, but, uh, you know, it was it was all right. I don't know. I, I, I sit there and, and start to, you know, analyze it and all of that sort of thing. But I don't know necessarily if that's better or worse. Like I kind of, I quite enjoy reading, you know, ancient texts where we don't really have any kind of insight into what they were thinking other than the text itself. So the text has to speak for itself. But yeah, I don't know. Um, how do you feel about this kind of revisionist approach we have when we actually look back on classics or things with with fresh eyes or or even with more personal insight into the the creator itself does it matter once a certain amount of time has passed i think it matters more when you are the person attacked in the text i think you know taking harry potter as an example I, like many, many millions of other people out there, read Harry Potter as a teenager and it was really important to me at the time. And I, you know, it will forever be special to me um, because of how it helped me at a difficult time in my life. And and I and I feel like that is something that I, I kind of have to separate from its creator. But then I am not a trans person. I am not directly personally affected by the the hurtful things and um, the hate speech if you if you were you know if you take it to its logical and horrible conclusion that the JK Rowling has is perpetuating so in a way I'm in a privileged position I don't have to feel like it's a personal attack I know and you could say the same thing for Lovecraft and um, and racism you know and if, if you felt like you were the person that he was attacking I feel like that may well be, you know, a very valid block to you even reading, um, let alone enjoying his work. Um, so I, I like many things in life, it's subjective, it's all subjective. And I think it comes down to heavily to personal experience. I totally agree with what Lucy said, that I think it matters most if you're the person attacked. And like Lucy, I got a lot of good things out of Harry Potter. I must admit, I'm rereading it with my daughter and seeing it from a mother's point of view and seeing some of the squabbles and the the messages for the kids, you know, like Harry and Ron's treatment of Hermione now and again. I do see 
different issues with it. And I see my daughter as being the person attacked when I read that. So we tend to sort of discuss the issues I, I find. My other one for that is Tolkien. I love Tolkien, happily reread it, listen to it, watch it, whatever. And although I do pick up on the racist elements now that I know about them, it's not that I don't mind them. It's just, like Lucy says, they don't really make me go and recoil and think this is so horrible. Whereas I use that as an example because the other one I have is Lovecraft, where I do do that. And although I'm not the person attacked, the writing is so objectionable that I just, I can't read it. I know that Cthulhu is so popular with so many people and it's almost become a genre in its own right. And you can write about Cthulhu without mentioning any of Lovecraft. But the rest of his stuff, I just, I I can't. And I downloaded um, a load of short stories thinking, well, you know, I'm going to give it a go. And I listened to them. And after like sort of five or six, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I wasted my money. And I mentioned it to someone and I said, oh yes, I I got these. And I listened to the story and they went, oh, you shouldn't start there. And I was like, well, you know what? If this writer comes with a caveat that you should only read certain things, then I'm not really sure it's the writer for me. Again, while Tolkien and even Roald Dahl and J.K. Rowling have objectionable bits to them, I still think there's a lot of good stuff surrounding it with a lot of positive messages that you can take away, whereas I just did not get that with Lovecraft at all. I mean, okay, two major things here, but first I'm going to do the slightly silly one. But uh, when I talk about not having enjoyed uh, Terry Pratchett. Uh, And then I say, well, yeah, I read The Colour of Magic and people say, oh, you shouldn't start there. Uh, Can I use the same argument? Just because because The Colour of Magic isn't as great as some of the really fantastic books that that Pratchett reads. I was just, you know. You just go, oh, it's a bit meh, rather than, oh my God, I can't believe he just said that about a person of colour. Oh, no, he he not only said it, he repeated it. And look, some other characters threw in some extra insults. You know, it's not the same level. You can't have Tom. I know. You can't have Cratchit and compare him to Lovecraft. (laughs) You're treading a line, Megan. Yeah, yeah. I will say, though, that potentially... Although you know you you were using examples of his his racism in Lovecraft, he actually is very misogynistic as well. So arguably, you are kind of the victim there. You know, you are who a lot of it is directed at, even if it's not the racist parts of it, but the the misogynist parts are there and very in your face in Lovecraft. Uh, that is not my. F- I'm sorry, I haven't actually read any Lovecraft. So that is probably why I'm so blissfully unaware of this fact. Well, it's really interesting because actually now you say it, I can think back on it and think, actually, do you know what? Yeah, there is. <laughs> Weirdly, they weren't really the bits that really shocked me. And I wonder if it's because I've just internalised it so much. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's it's another like, you know, old horror writer just thinking women are re- useless and running around screaming or, or this, that and the other. You know, there's quite a lot of that in horror things. I mean, I love M.R. James to pieces, but... It's all very, very masculine. It's a real sausage fest with M.R. James. And there's nothing wrong with his women. They're just not very present. And that's totally cool. And, you know, some of the other other old authors I've, I've read, again, you kind of go, oh, it's a really useless female character. But I don't know what it was about Lovecraft. And I, I wouldn't, I would not want to go back and listen to it just so I could get a quote to say, you know, that bit was really terrible because I just remember, weirdly enough, hanging the washing out and listening to this and going, Okay, I think I'm going to turn it off now because it was just too bad. 
So, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting this idea of whether or not kind of the the objectionable content or or hate speech is directed at you, the reader, the viewer, etc. Because as you say, like I I will go back and I will read and potentially enjoy knowing the caveats of well, okay, yes, this writer was a white cis man from this period of time, so of course he thought women were rubbish, and I just kind of get on with it and kind of accept the that there will be sexism throughout this novel, but I will just deal with it and, and go on. It's one of those things, it's like, how, have I just accepted it too much should i be more upset about it should i be more up in arms about it i don't i don't know but you're right i have more of an issue with racism or in in kind of older texts and then in, in newer texts i think it's it's definitely when you get kind of lgbtq kind of hate speech that i really struggle with but i think also Anything published now is going to be looked at with a much stronger, more critical eye than perhaps anything published 100, 200 years ago, uh, even 50 years ago. Yeah, yeah, because it has the (laughs) virtue of being so far back in time that it can be dismissed as, oh, well, it's a product of its time and that's what everyone thought. And of course, this does not make it acceptable, um, but it is a convenient excuse for why, you know, people will give it a pass, whereas they would not do the same for now. And I think that, you know, that that is, it's acceptable that we don't give things a pass now because I think we have come, you know, obviously we have a lot of work to do. The fact that we still talk about these issues means we have a lot of work to do, but we have also made progress. And the fact that we can measure it and it is measurable and we, we, there are some fantastic, so many fantastic texts out and so many fantastic creators out there today working to push the boundaries. I think this is laudable and we should be, we should be holding creators to a higher I I hesitate to use the word moral standard, but yeah, moral standard, because, you know, we're in the 21st century. We shouldn't, this excuse of, oh, well, you know, these are the attitudes at the time. Um, It shouldn't hold water anymore. It it does remind me of this whole, this whole kind of separating the creator from, you know, the, 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 the art or the art from the artist is, is like the whole debate about Mein Kampf. You can't really put Hitler into the same category as someone like Marion Zimmer Bradley. I mean, Hitler is responsible for the death of six million people, and yet he has a piece of work that is still in print, and you can purchase that work. And I think Waterstone sells it. You know, and we have had people in the store saying, How can you sell this? I studied at university. Yeah. The company's policy is that it, you can't censor something like that. It's an important text um, for, for many reasons. Um, but I think that then this this comes down to personal choice. Again, you know, whether someone, you you can choose not to, to read and engage with that. And that's as valid as also choosing to read and engage with it, because it is also a historical text with a, you know, a, a very stark warning embedded in it. So I feel like all these questions are so closely bound up with the idea of free speech and censorship. It's very hard to kind of extricate one from the other. I think where it crosses boundaries is where it becomes 
hate speech and and how do you where is the boundary between hate speech and free free speech something like mein kampf is very different to what we're talking about as well because that in itself is kind of a work of hate whereas things we're talking about aren't generally so like not say that i i don't know i can't remember the name of that robert galbraith novel but the, the yeah no it's man. but like i i get what you mean you know, you know it's direct it's directed hate rather than yeah so something like harry potter if you didn't know anything about jk rowling you wouldn't go into reading harry potter and thinking this is written by someone who hates trans people and you know has very questionable values okay you don't know that from just looking at the text but say looking at something like Mein Kampf you go okay yes I do know that this person is horrendous just like you know actually reading The Fountainhead there there are certain things which yeah I think when the the text itself has the hate embedded in it I'm not okay with that but if it doesn't Mm. then I then it's like well how how much can I separate the two? And also, again, I come back to, you know, the, the Joss Whedon and using women's pain to kind of buoy the, the male characters being something that I didn't see earlier until I went back to it. You know, obviously none of us are perfect. I'm going to read things, enjoy things that I then go, oh, yes, I can see that I probably shouldn't have laughed at that fat joke. But... <sighs> Yeah, it's questionable because, you know, I just, I don't know. Is it okay to really like these things? Should we be recommending these things? You know, if if someone, not that this really is a situation that would ever really exist, but if you have someone who loves fantasy things and then you're like, oh, well, if you love fantasy, you know, you should check out, you know, Tolkien to understand more of the history and the development of the genre. But should we really be recommending them? If, if we know that there is racism embedded in that, if we know that these problematic things are there, should we remember it? Or, sh- you know, or should it be like for me, my university, I studied philosophy and ethics. And in that unit, we studied Mein Kampf. So is it important that we actually look at these things and take them apart? And, or, or can we recommend them with those caveats? Can we recommend them? in the sense of saying be aware that all this stuff is there but it's it's interesting to know the history i don't know i'm spitballing <laughs> but no i agree with you i think i think that is important because otherwise it, it's straying into censoring it and I, I don't think any anything good can really come of censorship because it's a bit like erasing, um, you know, if you erase the past and the shitty things that have happened, then what context do you have to place the shitty things that are happening in the present in? And how do you measure progress? I think that these texts are, they will always offer something to somebody. I don't think it necessarily means they can be recommended to everybody. And maybe that's where you have to draw the line. You have to just say that, you know, there isn't a universal measuring stick for who we can or should or shouldn't recommend Tolkien to. It's really it's really hard to say when you are not personally affected by some of these things. I mean, I think it, it would be a shame 
in some respects to completely discount a work because of one element of it. But I think what you've said is correct in that talking about being aware of the fact that this element of the work is offensive to a group of people and that this is important, that should be flagged up. And if it, you know, and if it is, then there is no reason why the work in question could not be recommended not necessarily as a work to be enjoyed, but certainly as a work to be studied as a part of, you know, the history of a genre. I like to think about this because, again, it, it keeps to me coming back to this idea of, you know, we talk about separating the creator from from the products, but it's it's often with things where, even if maybe not explicitly, that there will be something subtle or just embedded in there somewhere, something problematic, potentially. Whereas I love Frank Lloyd Wright's buildings. I think he was an incredible architect and did some, created some beautiful things. He also did these, you know, incredible stained glass windows and designed this amazing furniture and tiles and really beautiful I don't think you can look at a building and go, oh, I can see the embedded sexism here. Mm, Yes, I can see that this man definitely beat his wife, which I don't mean to sound flippant, but the thing is, I feel like somehow that is very different because they can't really (laughs) transmit their hate in that kind of work of art, whereas I, I, I feel things like books and TV shows and films and there's there's more of a responsibility there because there's more cultural commentary and there's more to engage with yeah just somehow and 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 because of that there the very nature of those texts means that there is more in them and more for the creator to potentially pass on if that which sounds like I'm dissing architecture, which I'm absolutely not because I love architecture and and as I said, I, I love those buildings. But a building, well, yes, you could argue that architecture actually defines how we run cities and all that sort of stuff. But in terms of the cultural and social structures, I, I feel like that's not you're not gonna get a kind of prejudice built out of a building. I don't know. There are some buildings that are really horrible. <laughs> You know what I mean. <laughs> I do know what you mean. And I think it's a really, yeah. I feel like we're straying into philosophy here. I mean, that that's not surprising coming from you. And I love it when that this happens because it is just, it is one of those discussions that could go on and on because it has legs and it could just go in any direction. But I really like the, you know, talking about um, different pieces of art. I know it's architecture is clearly something that we do not talk about very much on this podcast, but, you know, when we're talking about separating the art from the artist, why not? I've been pondering the Mein Kampf versus Tolkien for a while. I'm trying to decide why it is acceptable to have both of them, but also how they're different. I think the difference between Mein Kampf and Tolkien is this idea of separating the art from the artist, which is what we've been talking about. Tolkien's work is art. It is imagination. It is a world where he's inviting you to join him and to go with it go with him into this world. And he goes, this is how I think an imaginary world would be. I, this is what I think it would be if we had elves and dwarves and all these kind of things. Whereas I think when it comes to Hitler, there was no 
separation. It's just like, this is the world and how it should be. This isn't a secondary world. This is what I think the world should be. And this is how you will live in it. And you can't walk away from that. You can put Tolkien down. You can say, you know what? That world's not for me. And you can't do that with Mein Kampf. And because it is so direct in your face, it is so much more objectionable. And because it's related to the real world as well, I think that's a huge difference. Is it related to the real world or is it an imaginary world? And even J.K. Rowling, yeah, okay, it's sort of set in the real world, but most of it takes place in somewhere for wizards, you know, in a, an imaginary castle. It's, it's just a huge difference. And I can see why people, you know, might say, how could you have Mein Kampf and things? And I see what it is about part of history. And I think that Tolkien, although it doesn't have a direct impact on the history of the world, it does have an impact on the history of writing. And Megan can correct me if you're wrong, but I don't imagine that people read Mein Kampf for the artistic worth of it, to see the turn of phrase. Well, beyond obviously the the oratory skills that Hitler possessed, which won him so many supporters, but you don't sort of go in it to see the imagery or how he deals with, you know, a secondary world. And I think that's the sort of thing you'd look for in Tolkien because it is, it was a brand new way of describing a brand new world. Uh, Same with C.S. Lewis um, and people like that. It was, it was creating a whole new genre. And I don't think we'd have all of the wonderful stuff we have today if you didn't have that stepping stone. And I think there is a lot to take out of Tolkien and a lot that you can kind of say, you know what, divorce the artist from the art, which you can't in other things like the Robert Galbraith, where it's the serial killer, or Mein Kampf, where he's, you know, suggesting genocide and all this kind of stuff. It's it's too closely interlinked. But with Tolkien, there's enough there and enough other things of worth that I think it can balance it out. And it should be kept. And I don't think it should be censored for one element when there's a lot else to draw. Again, it's all coming back to this idea of, yeah, but it's not actually affecting me and I'm not the main person behind it. But when I think about all the horror I read where it's objectionable to women, I mean, even we were talking just a moment ago about Lovecraft, the objectionable women bit was like, well, it's a bit annoying, but I kind of accept that. And I think there is worth in in a lot of historical horror I've read, even if it's not being quite up to the standards I would have expected for feminism. It's a case-by-case basis. And I think there's a lot in Tolkien that is worth keeping and worth learning from. I think you wouldn't get some of the fabulous worlds that we've built today if it wasn't for the fact that we had Tolkien at the beginning. And I think that should be acknowledged whilst at the same time saying there are some problematic aspects. I know it's a bit random, but we were watching The Tudors the other day, which is, oh, good news, how how many years ago that was. And we were going, God, this is really quite terrible. You know, it's not this fabulous thing that we remember. But at the time, it was quite groundbreaking because it was huge, big cast, and it was really impressive. And they stomped all over history, but nobody cared because it was such good fun. And you wouldn't get things like Game of Thrones today unless you had stuff like that. And same with Star Trek. And even randomly, an article I was writing the day, I Love Lucy, completely changed, you know, the way that TV shows were made. Incidentally, their company went on to support Star Trek and and help bring that to the screen. So, you know, yay for that anyway. Just putting in a Star Trek reference there, just so it's just not Megan on her own. So I think think there is a lot to be taken from Tolkien and I don't think it should be censored. I don't know, I was discussing this the other day, should, here's an aspect, instead of having censorship and saying, you know, don't read this, would you put a note on the front or would you put a little foreword discussing it? You know, is, is that something that we would want to see in novels and older pieces of work going forward saying, you know, well, look, 
it does contain this element of racism or misogyny or whatever. Um, here is critical response to it. Here is what we think. I mean, I don't know. Is that kind of thing going to be helpful or is that just another form of censorship or, or what? <laughs> I would just like to point out how really, in a way, messed up it is. that and I include myself in this, that we give like a car- almost free pass now to misogyny but we draw the line at racism and transphobia. And I just think that's so it's so interesting about where we're standing now. Um, that, and I, I feel like I do this myself. Um, is it because, I know this is maybe slightly off to- topic, but like, is it because women have, have put up with this for thousands of years and it's not a new thing? Is that what it is? Like, it, are these newer bigotries really you think racism is new no i know that's what i mean racism's not new but it seems to be newer than the women thing because more people talk about it and it's more of a problem and why why is it more why are the why are there their sliding scales of importance to bigotry and prejudice i was thinking about this as i was preparing for the episode and i don't think it's about that. I don't think it's about how long it's been around or sliding scales. I think what it is, it's about output today. And I can read my daughter a novel which has misogyny in it, uh, knowing that I could say, you know what, that was a bit rubbish when it came to women, don't you think? How about this book over here? It's much better. And let's read about what happens when women are put in the same situation, but have more of an active role. And I feel comfortable that whatever problem I can find in a book relating to women, I can find another book written by a man or a woman or anyone that will deal with it in a different way and will create a more positive feeling towards it. Whereas I don't think you get that very much with racism. Although that is interesting. Thank you for pointing that out. I think that's a really, really good point. (laughs) So I don't think it's not that it's not there or that we don't place value on it. I just think that people have written stuff these days that deals with it and there is something you can point to and so you tend to go you know what I can appreciate that for its time because I have something equally wonderful that I can read if I want something that's not misogynistic but you don't necessarily say that with racism um we're getting that way a little bit but still not enough that I feel comfortable with it I mean going back to what you were saying earlier Charlotte about why you think Mein Kampf versus Lord of the Rings say I felt like you were straying a bit into the intention, the intention behind the work, which on some level I agree with, but again, it's potentially problematic. Again, you know, if you look at something, an ancient Greek text, we don't necessarily have any secondary sources or anything to say what the context was, what the intention behind that piece of work is. We can only read it from the text itself and then make a judgment on it. And potentially, I think we're in a really difficult time period at the moment, given that we can't really just have a text on its own. We can't actually look at Harry Potter completely separate of J.K. Rowling because she's too out there and she's too present in our cultural consciousness. It's it's like not possible, even though you could say that her intention behind writing Harry Potter is not an intention of hate, whereas her intention beto- behind writing um, that Robert Galbraith novel was. 
you know, an intention of hate. But at the same time, I, yeah, I struggle with the idea of, of taking a text's merits based on the intention rather than letting it speak for itself. And again, that, that would be my distinction with Lord of the Rings and uh, something like Mein Kampf because the text itself of Mein Kampf is, is, is a hate-filled piece of content, whereas Tolkien's is both imaginative and hate-filled. <laughs> I don't know if that... I don't know if that works, but I, I do think there is an element of intentionality, but I also, I do worry about that sort of reading because I, I don't know, maybe it's, it's, it's me trying to just hold on to these things. Like, can, can I like Disney? Because Walt Disney was a horrible man. Uh, can, you know, all these sorts of things, you know, at what point do I need to start saying I can't support these things anymore? And that's that's one thing that that I wanted to talk about. You know, when it comes to, I I would never say you can't like Harry Potter because J.K. Rowling is hateful. I think people can like Harry Potter. People can find joy in Harry Potter and continue to to experience that. And I'm not going to be upset with any of them for doing so. But there is, you know, a, a movement of people saying, you know, we should boycott anything by creators who peddle hate. And I can understand that. You don't want to give money to people who are already in positions of power and causing more problems and, and causing more hate, generating a hateful environment. But at the same time, you want people to be able to love and enjoy the things that they love and enjoy. So it's it's very tricky. But I mean, what do you think about... When it comes to dead dead authors, you know, they're not benefiting directly from their sales. You know, Marion Zimmer Bradley is not garnering sales from her works now. So is it okay to just enjoy those texts in and of themselves? Personal choice, I was going to say. I, I don't think you can say anything else. I mean, there's no... Yeah, okay, so um, she did a terrible thing. I possibly more than one terrible thing, but that wasn't in her book. And I've heard lots of people, I haven't read Marion Zimmer Bradley, but I've heard lots of people say Mr. Babylon is excellent and they, you know, really loved it as a child and they've loved it as an adult. And I think that if you go into that knowing what, you know, for example, someone like me, I haven't read the book, but I do know about Marion Zimmer Bradley. So at this point I have a choice do I read Mr. Babylon because it's something that appeals to me, knowing what I know about its author, you know? And at this point, I suppose it depends on, you know, if I had, you know, if I felt like it was going to be a valuable piece of research, I would probably read it, but I, I would have to buy it. And I think if, if that creator was still alive, I would feel very unhappy about um, financially supporting someone with that past that I am aware of. So it's, it's a tricky one. <laughs> when I wrote this question, I put in Marion Zimmer Bradley's name in particular, because she's quite an interesting case. Because as you say, she's done some horrible, horrible things. But I remember reading about it and someone saying, you know what, don't stop buying Marion Zimmer Bradley, because actually the money that is created by her books now goes to her descendants who are the victims of her abuse. 
So they are actually profiting from it. And what better way to show your support for them than to ensure they have a, a steady income and to try and gain something out of the terrible things that she did. Now, I'm not saying that's not my personal opinion. I'm just saying that's what I read. But I thought that that was quite an interesting dichotomy because, yeah, you don't want to support an author that's that's done something as terrible as that. But at the same time, if supporting them not only create, gives you a, a piece of art that you can sort of divorce them from the, the terrible person, but also supports the victims of that person, then you know, does it make a difference to say just buying something that will line JK Rowling's pockets? So it, I thought that was quite an interesting idea. And I don't know what you guys think about mm. it. Well, yeah, because it's not supporting them, is it? It's not supporting the problematic creator. It's supporting, you know, if this was true and this, let's say, let's, it's a hypothetical scenario, you know, that this is the situation. If you buy this particular book, it's going to go to the people who were most harmed by its creator. I think that, you know, that it, it is different than supporting the person who, you know, financially supporting the person who produced it. Yeah, it's, I, I again, personal choice, but I, I think most people would probably agree it does make a difference. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.